And uh, this year, we are uh, pleased to have with us uh, John Cantor. Uh, John is a uh, graduate of Moody Bible Institute and and, uh, Dallas uh, Theological Seminary. He's been involved in uh, Jewish ministry and outreach of uh, various kinds for over 30 years. Uh, And of course, uh, being here at Beth Messiah, we are familiar with uh, CJF Ministries. Our our Eric Chabot uh, works for them. And uh, John, for many years, uh, worked for CJF Ministries in uh, Dallas, Texas. And he continues to live in Dallas, but now uh, he is with a ministry called Sojourners uh, Ministries still. Uh, reaching Jewish people with the good news of the Messiah uh, and uh, speaking uh, to Christian groups and churches uh, about uh, the centrality of, uh, of Israel. Uh, and, uh, and I know, uh, just from my own experience uh, with John, that he is an outstanding communicator, uh, loves uh, the Word of God, and uh, just a, a wonderful man. He's a Jewish believer. Uh, in Messiah. And I know that most of us are not familiar uh, uh, with John, but hopefully by the end of this weekend, uh, John, you'll be uh, right at home uh, here at the Beth Messiah. Now, uh, our theme this year is a phrase that we're familiar with because we say it all the time here at Beth Messiah, experiencing Israel's future uh, uh, today recognizing that uh, Yeshua, the Messiah, is indeed our Lord. He is our, our King, and we can experience uh, the beginning of the future even now. Uh, and we have as the, uh, uh, the sort of a, a sub-theme, living well under the reign of Messiah Yeshua. And so tonight, uh, John will be speaking on, as, just as he uh, has his titles here, Kingdom Entrance, Tomorrow morning at our service at 10.30, Kingdom Mindset. Then tomorrow evening at 7 p.m., Kingdom Priorities. And then on Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Kingdom Peace. Uh, And I know that we will really enjoy this. And uh, after uh, this evening and each and every uh, uh, service this weekend, we have an opportunity to be a blessing to John as he will be to us. Uh, and uh, I will have some uh, 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 outreach cards from Sojourners Ministries, and uh, we certainly uh, encourage us all uh, to uh, to bless John, in, you know, in a, in a really good way. Because uh, he's come all the way from Dallas. His his uh, wife Terry is uh, down there uh, waiting for his return, as well as his son and daughter-in-law and grandson. All right. Great. All right. And so uh, let's pray, and then John will come and uh, um, bring uh, the Word of God to us tonight. Lord, thank you, God, for uh, Shabbat, first of all. Every single week, Lord, you give us a holiday. You give us a day, an island of time, Lord, where we can remember you and all of your blessings. You know, as uh, we read in the Psalms, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And When we come to Shabbat, that's what we want to do. And uh, Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have this particular weekend uh, of uh, being encouraged uh, that you are indeed our king. And Lord, uh, we do pray for uh, John as he comes and leads us uh, tonight and throughout this weekend. 
We pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Well, shalom, y'all. That's a Texas Hebraic greeting. The diaspora of uh, the Lone Star State. It's a joy to be with you tonight and to have the privilege of sharing in the ministry of the Word. Um, that was a wonderful introduction that Howard gave. Let me sum it up like this. I tell Jews about Jesus, and I tell Gentiles about Jews. And in my spare time, I sing the blues. But it's all good. It's all good on this Shabbat. I thought I would begin tonight by giving you a bit of uh, background about myself, because you're probably saying, uh, who is this guy? Uh, I haven't written any books. I, I, you know, I'm just kind of a small-time guy serving a big-time God. But uh, I wanted to give you, uh, again, some personal context. I call this imagining a not-so-unimaginable journey. And this is actually taken from my podcast. I know this sounds somewhat self-serving here, uh, but I do have a podcast that I call sacredsojourn.org. One word, sacredsojourn.org. You're welcome to log on to that. And it's kind of reflections on the messianic faith journey in real time, real life. Anyway, what I'm about to share with you is an excerpt from that podcast. And I should say, it's not a podcast in the usual sense where, you know, you have two individuals sitting across a table conversing, you know, kind of a freewheeling conversation about a particular topic. It's more, uh, I'd like to do that. I really would. I'm open to doing that. But so far what it is is just kind of a straightforward teaching program. But I, I, I want to have, um, I just don't want to be a talking dispenser of, of information. Uh, you know, uh, Howard Hendricks used to say, you know, the Bible was given not just for our information, but for our transformation, right? Becoming more like Yeshua in character and conduct. And uh, we need that, given all that's going on in our country right now, do we not? We live in a very highly charged, polarized environment. You don't need me to tell you that. And so, uh, really, that's uh, the main thing, is we want to become more like our Messiah in both character and conduct. So, again, I've titled this Imagining a Not-So-Unimaginable Journey. Uh, imagine tonight that you were born in Hollywood, California, and your divinely ordained ancestry is Russian Jewish, okay? It's not unimaginable. That's, that's not too bizarre. You can wrap your head around that. And let me add this. The worldview, the grid through which you understand everything, the worldview that you're weaned on is is secular, and it's also very passionately idealistic about the ability of people to affect social change. Okay, You're also taught that bigotry, racism is wrong, and you're exposed to both familial love and volatile outbursts. So far, so good? Now imagine that on a nondescript Sunday afternoon, your parents take you to a historic downtown L.A. location called Alvera Street. And you're surrounded by colorful Latino cultural paraphernalia. And they say, John, you can pick out a toy for yourself. And hey, you know, you're only five years old. And <laughs> good news, right? You're overwhelmed by the possibilities. But here's the deal. Your attention is drawn to a striking picture of a Scandinavian-looking man who has long hair, piercing blue eyes, and perhaps if those of you who may have come out of a, a background of Catholicism can relate to this, 
It had omnipresent eyes that follow you wherever you, you, you were in the room. Eyes that were always following you wherever you go. And this pocket-sized picture is attached to a tiny plastic stand. And, you know, the whole thing sells for about 25 cents. So you instinctively conclude that whoever this guy is, he must be very important because there's a lot of pictures of him at Olvera Street, okay? Now, you tell your mom that you want that picture, and even though it represents something that produces no small amount of anxiety within her, she buys it for you. And so, on the way home, you say, Mom, who is this guy? She says, his name is Jesus. You say, okay, well, who are his parents? And she responds, Joseph and Mary. And then she quickly adds, some people believe he is a son of God. We believe he was a great teacher. Now, you, you got to understand, you know, I was just five years old. I didn't know it from C.S. Lewis, Lord Lunatic Liar. I just, that wasn't on my radar screen at that point. You know that. Those of you who have read C.S. Lewis know what I'm speaking of there. All right, anyway, the point is, there is a tension. I mean, you could feel it. You could cut it with a knife. There was an unmistakable tension regarding the person of Yeshua, the person of Jesus. Now, imagine tonight that primarily from your grandparents, you begin to learn what this thing called, quote-unquote, Jewish is all about. And primarily, it's described as a painful, difficult history of persecution. But here's the deal. Nobody explains to you why this persecution exists. In fact, you recall a boy innocently asking his mom if he can play with you. And his mother strangely says, you know, you can't do that. And you start to wonder if this has something to do with what your grandparents have told you concerning the way Jewish people have been treated. Now imagine that you long to somehow connect with God and your well-meaning mother buys you a book that could have been subtitled A Child's Guide to Religious Pluralism. All right? You probably get that on Amazon today. Anyway, in the middle of your backyard, with all the sincere intensity you can muster, you talk to God. You believe He is there. And you believe He is listening. Now imagine tonight that as your relatively carefree childhood gives way to the inevitable growing pains of adolescence, you begin to get exposed to more overt expressions of anti-Semitism. In fact, you're told that the Jews killed Christ, which you find confusing because you've always been told that Jesus is Jewish. Plus, in your gut, you know that there's got to be something true about both Judaism and Christianity, that somehow they're linked together. But there's no one around you to connect the biblical theological dots and put the package together. And so you become frustrated because you're unable to articulate what you're convinced is true. And so your lineage, your heritage, becomes a heavy weight of embarrassment. Embarrassment. Because you don't know how to properly respond to this lightning rod of controversy that you were born into. Now imagine tonight that you find and pick up a, a little booklet off the ground, and it consists of Bible verses. You devour the words. In fact, the truth of what you're reading resonates with the deepest part of your being. In fact, you are literally captivated by God's love. 
But here's the thing. Even though you're only remotely familiar with the concept of a Messiah, you know, you, you grew up in Southern California in the 60s and 70s, you were in the most liberal branch of Judaism, California reform. That's deformed, actually. But anyway, we won't go into that. But, you know, we did kind of a kindershul thing, you know, Jewish Appreciation 101. Some of you know the drill. Even though you're remotely familiar with the concept of a Messiah, only, you know, it's kind of this vague, ambiguous concept, you begin to pray for God to show you whether or not Yeshua is, in fact, the Messiah. Now, imagine tonight that you get your hands on a book about Bible prophecy, and if I told you the, the author and the title, you'd know it. Hal Lindsey, Late Great Planet Earth, right? You don't understand much of what you're reading. You're 16 years old, right? You don't understand a whole lot of it. But you're filled with hope by what you do understand. And then, as you're watching a TV preacher trying to explain Bible prophecy, you're still mostly confused. And yet, at the conclusion of his broadcast, he gives an invitation to, quote-unquote, receive Jesus. And at that point, as a culmination of all your, your reading, all your praying, you believe, you believe that Jesus is who he said he is and that you desperately need him. And so you trust in his unparalleled person and work for forgiveness of sin and the reception of eternal life miraculously, you've come to believe even though nobody talked to you about the gospel and even though you didn't have anyone to talk to about the gospel. And that's true. Now, growing up, I didn't know any kids. I didn't have any peers whose faith was genuinely an important part of their life. You know, I had both Jewish and non-Jewish friends. But typically, the deal in those days is, you know, parents would say, okay, you got to go to church or you got to go to temple for until you're about 12 and then it's up to you well hey if it's up to me i'm out of here you know enough already with this stuff seriously i did not know any kids growing up whose faith was genuinely an important part of their life so here's what happens you start going to church you just say i guess i gotta go to services somewhere <laughs> and that becomes quite an education and many of you no doubt know what i'm speaking of much of what you encounter is neither healthy nor honoring to God. Now, in addition to blatant hypocrisy, under the guise of self-righteous religiosity, anti-Semitism persists in a more subtle yet equally toxic form. Now, I don't have an axe to grind. I'm just being real with you. It was what it was, and it is what it is. You're told that you're really not Jewish anymore, as if this God-given component of your personhood was somehow eradicated, wiped out, by trusting in the hope of Israel. And sadly, the few Jewish believers you meet are drinking the Kool-Aid of this pseudo-theological self-hate mantra. Well, imagine that at the tail end of a, a season of dissipation fueled by willful disobedience, you begin to discover biblical teaching and spiritual fellowship that actually encourages authentic, God-honoring Jewish identity. With respect to your lineage and your heritage, this enables you to move from a place of embarrassment to enlightenment. Enlightenment. Now you self-identify with the believing Jewish remnant 
as a testimony to God's faithfulness in keeping His promise of saving some of His covenant people in each and every generation. And to a greater extent than before, you recognize the centrality of Israel in the prophetic plan of God. Now imagine that in addition to your Jewish identity having this biblical component of enlightenment, it now also has a a holistic dimension of embracement. Embracement. In other words, in the way that you perceive yourself, your Jewishness feels more like an intrinsic part of who you are and what you feel a part of in terms of the Jewish historical experience and the unique brand of culture and worldview that comes out of that experience. And so after all these years, you're finally comfortable in your own skin. You say to yourself, I am that I am made me who I am. Hey, that will preach, right? (laughs) I am that I am made me who I am. And that in turn enables you to truly appreciate the gifts of others without feeling jealousy, resentment, or the need to have a hypercritical spirit. It frees you up to be an encourager and a mentor. Now my friends, imagine all of this. and You can imagine tonight why I think a certain Jewish carpenter is all that, right? And hopefully, as you reflect on your own not-so-unimaginable journey, as you look at that through a theocentric lens, a God-centered perspective, your life, regardless of who is president, your life won't seem ridiculously random but providentially and ultimately redemptive. And finally this evening, imagine that even if your not-so-unimaginable journey is different from mine in some respects, you'll still get the gist of where I'm coming from. Because what I've described rings true to real life in real time in a universal way, which ultimately transcends any specific ethnicity and culture. And so standing, my friends, on that common ground, Together, we'll be able to say, Baruch Hashem, blessed be the name, He gets all the glory. Imagine that. Imagine that. I'm done. No, we've got to do our topic. <laughs> just kidding. So anyway, I just wanted to give you a little background of my journey so you have a context in which to put this all in. All right. I trust you all have an outline this evening. Again, as Howard mentioned, this is Kingdom Entrance. And uh, just to let you know where I'm coming from regarding this business about the kingdom, uh, Howard and I talked about this over lunch today. Uh, I believe the kingdom is here, but not yet. So don't you fret. My exegesis is grounded in authorial intent. I'm a frustrated rapper. Vanilla Schlepp is my handle. All right. Now, as you look around the room this evening, by the way, Howard taught me everything I know about humor. So if you don't like the shtick, He's the guy to talk to. All right. As you look around the room tonight, everyone here has something in common. We all have a worldview. What do I mean by that? What I'm talking about, and this is not original with me by any means. I'm ripping off James Sire in his book, The Universe Next Door, which probably some of you are familiar with. What we're talking about is a set of presuppositions, assumptions, beliefs, convictions which we hold about the basic makeup of our world, the way things happen. You see, I believe everything that happens, happens 
Because God either directly causes it to happen, or He consciously allows it to happen. Now what does that mean on a personal level? Simply this. My friend, nothing can rock your world tonight unless Yahweh signs off on it. Do you believe that this evening? (laughs) Is that a source of comfort, strength, and encouragement to you tonight? I trust that it is. Sincerely, I trust that it is. You know, we often don't know why things play out the way that they do, but we can know the who behind our circumstances. Amen? And I would argue that in this life, with all of its uncertainty, with all of the polarization, all of the animus in our culture and society, I would argue that in this life, that's where ultimate comfort is found. So, again, we have this grid through which we understand everything about us. Now, another thing that we have in common this evening, I think if really pressed, each of us in some form or fashion could respond to questions like, what is ultimate reality, right? What's a human being? What happens to a person at death? How is it possible to know anything at all? And at the end of the day, how do we distinguish between right and wrong? Now again, the presuppositions, the assumptions, the beliefs, the convictions, which we use to answer those types of questions, hey, they may be true, they may be partially true, God forbid they could be entirely wrong. We may hold them consciously, subconsciously, consistently, inconsistently. But the point is, again, we all have them. These are the lenses, if you will, the glasses through which we we view and experience life. And again, referencing James Sire in his book, The Universe Next Door, Sire talked about the importance of a worldview like this. He said, really, for any of us to be fully conscious intellectually, we should not only be able to detect the worldviews of others, but also be aware of our own. Why is it ours? And why, in light of so many options, are we convinced that it's true? Now, did you happen to catch the phrase in that quote, so many options? (laughs) That accurately describes our our culture today, does it not? Our individualistic, not only postmodern, but basically post-Judeo-Christian culture. I mean, we live in a, a buffet line, a smorgasbord, if you will, of ideas that compete for our attention for our allegiance. So what does all of this have to do with entrance into the kingdom, kingdom entrance? Well, here are some worldview issues that I think are relevant to our topic. Also, I want to touch on some contemporary responses to these issues. For example, what is my nature as a human being? You know, am I an evolved animal by a divine spiritual being, a a sleeping God in some sense? As a human being, what is my most basic and underlying problem? Is it reason? Technology? Is it the need for some type of change of consciousness? Awareness? My friends, this evening, if you and I have a biblical worldview, one that is, is grounded in God's revelation, we affirm the existence of a personal, infinite Creator, one who is in the world and yet at the same time is also outside and beyond the world, a Creator who is unlimited in power and love. This Creator is God, of course, the ultimate reality. And if you and I have a consistent biblical worldview tonight, we believe that the nature of truth is absolute in the sense that it it corresponds to reality, the way things actually are. It is 
both knowable and logical. It holds together. And if you and I believe that that the Word of God is actually a historically reliable document, and if we hold that there is compelling historical and archaeological evidence to confirm its reliability, then we're barking up the right tree. If we believe that, we realize that the Bible gives us a reliable record of Yeshua's teaching. And concerning this teaching, we read that Jesus claimed to be both fully human and fully divine. It's what we call in theology the hypostatic union. His hypostatic union card has not expired. (laughs) When Jesus comes back, He comes back as the lion from the tribe of Judah. That's an affirmation of His Jewish humanity. And we see that the Lord gave evidence to support this claim, the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy, His miraculous, sinless life, His resurrection. And so, for those of us this evening, and I trust this is true of all of us, if we have this kind of way of looking at the world, we regard Jesus as both fully human, fully God, and as the ultimate reality, whatever God teaches is true. Yeshua taught that the Hebrew Scriptures, Tanakh, is the inspired Word of God. Both He and the Old Covenant, Hebrew Scriptures, looked forward to a Brit Hadashah, a new covenant. And this is why those of us with this kind of mindset believe that both covenants in their original manuscripts are God's inerrant message to humanity. So this, in essence, is the biblical worldview. It's the messianic grid, if you will, through which we interpret everything around us. And so this is why we would say as human beings, we are made in the image of God, but now that image, because of sin, is damaged or defaced, but not erased. Amen? As image bearers of God. When I preach in prison, Four times a year. There's a prison in Bonham, Texas. I go to four times a year and I, and I preach to men who are incarcerated. And a lot of these guys are in there for sexually related offenses. So they're looking at some serious time. And I say, you know what? Even though you're incarcerated this evening, as an image bearer of God, you retain significant worth and value. You and I, as image bearers of God, have intrinsic worth and value. And so this is why we would say our most pressing problem is sin. You know, really, I've been talking to kids. I say kids. I just turned 60. So, you know, anyone under 40 to me is a kid, right? I got to get out of the habit of doing that. Anyway, I talk to young adults. That's a better way of saying this. At the University of Texas in Dallas, this is part of my ministry. And uh, I can't assume in today's world any level of biblical literacy. As Howard alluded to, I've been preaching for over 30 years now. When I started out, you could assume a certain level of biblical literacy, you know, but now I go speak somewhere and I, oh, dude, we were talking about that over dinner, right? People, you know, a demographic, they're big on the word dude, all right? Anyway, this is so deep. I've never heard this before. Not particularly deep. You just don't know a whole lot. I don't say that, but that's what I'm thinking, right? It's like I was preaching in Hawaii once, you know? You know what a Hawaiian Hebraic reading is? Shaloha. That's a Hawaiian Hebraic reading. Anyway, Howard. Don't like the shtick. It's Howard's fault. Anyway, uh, now I was in Hawaii. I was preaching, and uh, I was talking, you know, real basic stuff. Abrahamic covenant, you know, Genesis chapter 12. Verses 1 through 3, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. You've heard that many, many times. Oh, this is so deep. Oh, I've never heard such teaching. This is fantastic. No, no. 
It reflects the lack of biblical literacy in our day. So, this is, we have to be like the sons of Issachar, do we not? Understand the times and know what to do. So again, getting back to this worldview, the ramifications, what it looks like. I'm talking to these kids at UTD, these young adults, and they say, well, what do you mean by sin? If you're saying our most pressing problem as human beings is sin, what do you really mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. It's choosing to live independently of God. That's the best way I can express it. Choosing to live independently of God. I have a cousin who struggles with same-sex attraction. And I believe he had a genuine born-again experience. I'm convinced he's a believer. I have no doubt about his salvation. But again, he struggles in this area of same-sex attraction. And I said to him, I said, look, uh, these are, you basically got two options. You're either going to act out or you're going to be celibate. Because he tried to be heterosexual. And that didn't pan out. I actually performed his wedding, and it was annulled after his wedding to a woman. <laughs> it was annulled after a month. So, you know, he's been down that road. That didn't work for him. So I said, okay, essentially you have two options. You can choose to act out, or you can choose to be celibate. So that's how, basically, when I speak of the reality of sin to millennials, it's choosing to live independently of God. And that's true of any dem demographic, is it not? So if we have this biblical grid, we're saying... That's the issue. Our natural bent, we inherited from Adam, the first man, is to live independently of God. And so we have this uncontrollable urge to rebel against God and His Torah, His instruction. So this is why we would say the answer to this issue of sin is faith. Faith in the finished redemptive work of Messiah, personal appropriation of His atonement. And so what I want to talk about tonight, and this will be probably seem rather basic to many of you, but really the reason I'm going down this road, I'm old school. I have a photographic memory. I just don't know where I put the camera, all right? So I need an acronym. I need a mnemonic device to help me communicate the gospel, all right? I'm all about the gospel. You teach Greek, right? Euangelion, the Greek word for gospel, the good news proclamation of the offer of God's power through the person and work of the Lord Messiah to give to those who believe in Him forgiveness and relationship to Him, resulting in everlasting life. That's what I'm about, okay? So the purpose of talking about atonement from Leviticus chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, is to give you a mental hook to hang your hat on so you can communicate the essence of atonement, being reconciled to God. And this is not original with me. I got this from Lewis Goldberg, actually. Uh, some of you know Lewis, right? He was a, he was a mensch. He was a great guy. And uh, I miss him, actually. I think about him often. Lewis was one of my profs at Moody. And uh, I got this from Lewis. One of these days, I'm going to have to write a book, Things I Stole from Others, that stole them from someone else. It'll be a commentary on Kohelet. There's nothing new under the sun. But anyway... I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 4. And what I want to do tonight is focus on four principles that we find in verses 3 and 4. Okay? I got good news and bad news tonight. The good news, just two verses. Bad news, I got a lot to say about these two verses. No, it's all good. Here's the main idea I want to develop. 
The central thought that ties this whole thing together is simply this. In Leviticus chapter 4, and I believe this is on your outline, we learn that the punishing of the innocent plus the forgiving of the guilty party equals atonement. And atonement is entrance into the kingdom. The punishing of the innocent plus the forgiving of the guilty equals atonement. That's the idea that I want to develop tonight. So, I cut my teeth. How many of you are familiar with um, Haddon Robinson's book, Biblical Preaching? Anyone familiar with that book? Okay, several of you. That's where I cut my teeth on how to prepare messages. Uh, Calvin Coolidge, former president. Presidents are on our minds these days, are they not? At least one is, and uh, we won't go there. But anyway, uh, Calvin Coolidge went to church one Sunday, and his uh, wife said, uh, Cal, what was, uh, what was the message about? What did the preacher speak on? Uh, it had something to do with sin. Okay, well, what did he say about it? I think he was against it. You see, the point is, clear communication is facilitated by clear articulation of a main idea. So again, our main idea, the punishing of the innocent plus the forgiving of the guilty equals atonement. Now, first this is seen when we consider the element of substitution in atonement. Substitution. Take a look at verse 3, if you would. It reads, If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering, for the sin he has committed. Now, we all know that on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, sins that were committed over the course of an entire year by every member of the Israelite community were acknowledged and paid for. In other words, there was accountability. There was justice. But not only that, we should also bear in mind that this was not a mere covering of sin, but rather real forgiveness, albeit temporary forgiveness, but real forgiveness granted by God. In other words, there was actual temporary removal of guilt and punishment. You see, under the lifestyle directives of the Mosaic Covenant, the sin sacrifice, which is outlined here, the essence of it, which is really spelled out here in chapter 4, is that the way, as in the only way, for Jewish people to be made right with God to receive forgiveness is laid out here. And properly observed, these sacrifices were not merely human efforts to obtain favor from what was perceived as a hostile God. These actions were an obedient response to Yahweh, yod vav the eternal self-existent one, an obedience response to the covenant-making God of Israel, the one who had initiated and was sustaining Israel's unique covenant relationship. To say that another way, simply put, it was cooperation with God's grace, His unmerited favor. It was appropriation of God's grace, was it not? Again, getting what we don't deserve. And when we're talking to someone, we can say something along these lines. God, by His grace, has made provision for cleansing, cleansing of sin and its effects. Why? So that people, you and I, as well as Old Covenant Israel, could safely enter into His presence. Amen? And that provision was absolutely necessary and continues to be absolutely necessary 
given the circumstances of life in our world. I want to be an encouragement to you this weekend. Sincerely. Sinful acts and defiled conditions of any kind have to be dealt with in order for communion with God to be maintained. In fact, we see here from an Old Covenant perspective, even true worshipers, people who were unwavering in their devotion to Yahweh, who sought to live in obedience to His laws, needed God's provision of cleansing in order to continue in fellowship with Him, right? But here's the thing. You know, you and I, if we're really honest about it, you and I can fall into sin very easily without realizing it. It's very insidious. We can be overtaken by a fault. We can sin unintentionally. It happens all the time. And so God, in a mosaic context here, God is saying even these types of sins, these unintentional sins, should not be treated lightly. The Mosaic law clearly stated that sins of any kind angered God. They violated His holiness. Kadosh, 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 His absolute moral perfection. They deprived Him of the honor due Him. They defiled His sanctuary. They put a barrier between the guilty and God. So my friends, what we see here is at the beginning of the atonement process, what's involved in bridging the gap between God and man was the designation of a substitute. And in the case of this particular offering, a young bull without any physical imperfections. And so what we find is that the substitute takes the place of the sinner. The substitute bears the sinner's guilt. That is to say, all of the judgment that the violator of God's standards has incurred upon themselves is transferred to the substitute. And you see, this is why the punishing of the innocent plus the forgiving of the guilty party equals atonement. And the truth of this principle is seen when we consider the element of substitution in atonement. Well, secondly, tonight, this equation is fleshed out when we consider the aspect of identification in atonement. Identification. Verse 4 says that the anointed priest is to lay his hand on the head of the bull. Now, this is, this is very interesting. This, there's some vivid imagery involved with this. The priest, when he laid his hands, the Levitical priest, when he would lay his hands upon the animal, the animal not only took the place of the priest in terms of accountability before God, but the animal also, in a very literal way, became his sin, the embodiment the physical embodiment of his sin. The substitute became the embodiment of sin's repugnant offensiveness to God. In fact, concerning this laying on of hands, Alfred Edersheim, some of you are are well aware of his massive book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. I've never actually read it. I just use it for exercise. Builds the biceps, you see. No, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. It's challenging, though. You know, I find anything that was written before uh, the age of television, even before the age of radio. It's just a whole different genre. Um, It requires sustained focus to to track with these uh, sustained arguments. And uh, one of the challenges for those of us who have public speaking ministries is to keep people engaged. You know, if I see you with your, your head down and your eyes closed this weekend, 
I'll assume you're praying for me. But I know it's tough to keep people engaged. We have short attention spans, do we not? You know, there's ADD and there's ADHD. That's high-definition ADD, you know. That's, so we, there's challenges to communication. But anyway, Edersheim wrote this in the pre-digital age concerning the laying on of hands. He said it was to be done with one's whole force, the whole weight of the offerer pressed upon the substitute. This meant transmission, delegation, representation. In short, it meant that the punishing of the innocent was securing forgiveness for the guilty. So far, so good? Well, thirdly, this truth is seen. Well, he consider the element of death required in atonement. Death. Look at the end of verse 4. It says simply, slaughter it before the Lord. So here we see that the sacrifice of the substitute sin bearer serves as a graphic object lesson that the penalty of sin is death, right? But not only that, I think the killing of the substitute also says something quite significant about God's character. The objection could be raised. Why doesn't God simply forgive as an act of goodwill? Why does He require such a drastic payment? What's up with that? Why doesn't He just cut us some slack? Why does He have to be such a hard guy? Well, the fact of the matter is, even if God could somehow overlook sin against Himself as a so-called act of goodwill, the fact is, He is bound by His nature, His holiness, His absolute moral perfection, to preserve justice in the universe. And so to ignore or gloss over sin, to play fast and loose with sin, would really destroy the whole meaningfulness of the concept of justice. Bottom line, what it ultimately comes down to is God's position of official administrator of the judicial system governing the entire universe. It's about His prerogative to exercise justice as He sees fit, right? But hey, we really shouldn't be surprised by that. Repeatedly in the Hebrew Scriptures we read, the soul that sins dies. Ezekiel 18.4, for example. And of course, you know, we're not just speaking of the cessation of physical life. We're talking about eternal separation from union and fellowship with God, coupled with conscious, physical, and emotional suffering in a, an environment so horrific we don't even have a category to fully put it in. But here's the deal. There's actually a positive flip side to the death required in atonement. You see, this action can be further interpreted as the animal giving its life to the offerer so that the offerer can continue living. In other words, there's an exchange of life that transpires here. The animal takes the life of the offerer by identification, and because the offerer's life is sinful, the animal dies. But on the other side of the shekel, the animal gave its life to the offerer so that the offerer can continue living. And it is this exchange of life that is the completion of the atonement process. Are you all tracking with me? Okay. The punishing of the innocent plus the forgiving of the guilty equals atonement. This is entrance into the kingdom. This is seen when we consider the substitution and atonement. It's seen when we consider the element of identification in atonement. It's seen when we consider the aspect of death in atonement. And it's seen when we consider 
the exchange of life and atonement. So, if you're looking for an easy way to remember this, just think of the acronym SIDE. S-I-D-E. S, substitution. I, identification. D, death of the substitute. E, exchange of life. This is the side door to your Yom Kippur, if I can say it like that. All right. But what about Yom Kippur today? What do we tell people today? What does atonement look like right now? How is it secured presently? Well, certainly the book of Hebrews tells us we have a whole new system of sacrifice, do we not? The old system of sacrifice, we know, was temporary. The new system, permanent. Old system, Aaron, first high priest. Now Yeshua Jesus, only high priest. Old system, high priest ministered on earth. New system, high priest ministers and Shemayim in heaven. Old system used the blood of animals. New system, blood of Messiah. Old system, many sacrifices. New system, requiring only one sacrifice. Old system, the sin offering was, and this is very significant, we tend to forget, the old system, the sin offering was for unintentional sins of ignorance. In the new system, the sin offering is also for intentional sins of disobedience. Did you catch that? Very critical point. And while the old system required careful approach to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the new system encourages that we have a confident, even bold approach to the throne of grace that we might find help in our time of need. As I like to say, holy, sanctified chutzpah. Amen? You know the classic definition of, of chutzpah, unmitigated gall. Right? This is from Leo Rostin, The Joys of Yiddish. It's like the guy who goes into the bookstore. He says, uh, I want a book on chutzpah, and I want you to pay for it. Again, got to run that by Howard. All right, anyway, moving right along. So what have we talked about tonight? Well, let me illustrate it like this. We've all used electronic calculators, right? It's a little old school, but we've all used them. We have them on our smartphones, those electronic calculators. What happens if you get your information confused? You make an error. You get a little permission. What happens? You press the clear button, right? And automatically, all the information is eliminated from your calculator. You begin again without trying to sort out the previous mistake. In fact, there's no record of your mistake. It's lost. It's gone forever. It goes into the cyberspace abyss, wherever it goes, right? Well, you know what? That's exactly what happens to our sins when God forgives us. And that's good news to communicate to folks in these days. The consequences, to some extent, may remain. And I've shared this multiple times with my gay cousin. But the guilt, the legal condemnation for the offense is gone forever. Use the language of Psalm 103 as far as the East is from the West. Amen? So what have we talked about tonight? We talked about substitution from a new covenant perspective. From the vantage point of the Brit HaDashah, we're saying that Messiah died the death. Each person should die. Messiah as a perfect representative of mankind endured the death, the judgment everyone should receive. This is our message. We're telling people how to enter the kingdom. He died in behalf of us. He died in our place. We tell people about identification. Again, from the vantage point of the new covenant, we're saying that God charged the sins of the entire human race of all times to Messiah. 
Messiah never committed sin personally. And yet in the mind and plan of God, the sins of everyone were charged to Him. We talked about the death of the substitute. In the new system, this means Messiah's human spirit was separated from His body. That is to say, His divine person was separated from the person of the the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, and while the, now here's, I don't want to get too abstract here, but I think this is significant. While the extent of this separation was eternal in degree, it was not eternal in time. Why? Because He was resurrected. He was raised up. And by raising Messiah from the dead, we know that God gave testimony to the fact that He accepted the work of His Son on behalf of people like you and me, on behalf of the people that we have opportunity to talk to in these days. The resurrection, anastasis, was his divine stamp of approval. We talked about the exchange of life from our perspective, looking backward upon that Roman execution stake at Calvary. This affirms that Messiah's death took away the penalty of sin. Again, eternal separation from union and fellowship with God. It means his death paid the price of redemption because mankind was held captive by sin and its effects. This death paid the price of release, purchased sinners to himself. Death satisfying the offended holiness of God. We have sinned against God. We have violated. We have offended his holiness. And yet, through the death of Mashiach, the anointed one, satisfaction was made to God for sin. His death reconciled. Think about the magnitude of this. His death reconciled all man to God. Through the death of Messiah, man is thoroughly changed in his relation to God and made potentially savable. God now views mankind differently. Why? Because their sins are no longer imputed to them, but to Messiah. Now again, I don't want to get too abstract, but it's, I think it's worth saying, while this is positionally true for all, it only becomes experientially true to those who actually trust Him to those who believe this is true. So I think Messiah's atonement is unlimited in its value, but it's limited in its effect or appropriation. It has to be individually appropriated by faith. That's how I understand atonement. So, kingdom entrance. It's through a side door, is it not? Substitution, identification, death of the substitute, exchange of life. That's really all I wanted to say tonight as we get this conference kicked off.